This Torah class is brought to you by TorahAnytime.com. The Talmud tells us of an event that happened some 2,000 years ago. It was a day in the life of Rabbi Lozer Bar Padas. Rabbi Lozer Bar Padas was the leader of his generation, a scholar, a saint. But despite the fact that he was an extraordinary individual, he lived a very difficult life. Austere, bitter poverty, illness, disease, he had a very rough time. And the Talmud describes one day in his life, one day he went for a medical procedure, and when he came back home, he found a bare cupboard. But a bare cupboard meant literally nothing to eat. He reached in somewhere in the back, and he found a clove of garlic, he bit into this clove of garlic, and he passed out from malnourishment. The word quickly spread that the great Rabbi Lozabar Padas is unconscious, and all the notables of the generation came to visit, came to see, and they were there in his house when he was in the state of unconsciousness. And in that state, they noticed the following. First he began crying, then he began laughing, then a beam of light emanated from his head. When he awoke, they said to him, what was the meaning of this? The crying, the laughing, the beam of light. And Rabbi Lozabar Padas answered them, he said, at that moment, God himself came to visit me. And I said to God, when will my suffering end? How long will it go on for? And God said to me, Elozer, my son, would you like me to turn back the world to its moment of creation. Maybe we'll find a time for you with sustenance, with support. The Marsha, one of the commentaries on this piece of the Talmud, explains to us that God was offering Rabbi Lozabar Pradas something unique. Do you feel that your life is too harsh? Do you feel it's too hard? Would you like me to start again? Take you out of your life now, put you into a different life, and you could start again. Something very unique and unusual as an offer. And apparently, his life was so difficult, and it was so harsh, that he didn't know whether to take the offer or not. And he says, I turned to God and I said, tell me the following. Did I live half of my days already? Did I pass the halfway mark? If I pass the halfway mark, I think I can continue. If not, I'm not sure. God said, yes, you lived more than half of your life. In which case, says Rabbi Lezabar Badas, don't put me into a different life. Allow me to continue leading, the one I have been leading. And God then said to me, the reward that's awaiting you is in a state that's so wide and so vast that there are 13 rivers running through it. Again, the Marshal, one of the commentaries, explains to us that this tzaddik's reward is in the world to come. In the world to come, there are no rivers, there are no estates, there's no physicality. But it's a parable. Imagine a man in our world who's so wealthy that he owns tracts and tracts of land. He owns an entire state with rivers, lakes running through it. That's a parable to allow you to know his reward in the world to come, how great it's going to be. And Rebeloza Barbados continues, he says, at which point I said to God, Thirteen rivers, that's all, no more. And God said to me, if I'm going to give you more, 
what will be left to your friends? At which point I said to God, give me those portions of those people who didn't earn it yet. Again, the Marshall, one of the commentaries, explains to us that when God creates each individual, God creates for that person a portion in the world to come. If they earn it, it's theirs to keep. If not, it's left unclaimed. Says Rabbalah, don't give me from anybody else. Don't take away from anyone else. Take those portions that weren't earned, give them to me. At which point, God touched me on the forehead, said, Giri Bach, as if to Shay. And that's the end of this section of the Talmud. Now, obviously, this little vignette presents quite a number of problems. The basic understanding, as well as many problems it brings up. So let's begin with one obvious question that I'd like to ask on this section of the Talmud. We're dealing with a great man. We're dealing with a man who's dedicated to his nation, to his people. We're dealing with a man who's completely other-centered, a servant of God. Whatever God's will is, he does. Whatever God's wishes is, he obeys. And this man is suffering. But he's not suffering lightly. Disease, austerity, poverty. He has a very harsh life. His life is so difficult that when God himself appears to him, the very first question he says to God is, when will my suffering end? So here's the question. God is merciful. God is loving. Wouldn't you imagine that at this moment in time, God would say, Allah is my son. You've done well. I'll take over. I'll provide for you. But astonishing that it's not God's response to Rabbi Lezabar Padas. God's response is, do you want me to turn back the world to its moment of creation? Maybe I could find you a life that doesn't include poverty? That sounds rather perplexing. This is God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. He has plenty and plenty of money. Why didn't he just say, Allah is my son, I'll take care of you? How do we understand this section of the Talmud? And to understand this, I think we need a perspective on life. And to begin that perspective on life, I'd like to share with you a parable, which hopefully will shed a little bit of light on this issue. The parable sounds like this. Imagine an actor, a very famous actor, and he gets a call from his agent one morning, and the call sounds like this. Listen, Jack, we got a great script. It's a guaranteed Oscar. I'm going to send it by. I want you to sign on it. The actor reads the script, goes through it. The next day, true to his word, the agent calls back, Jack, we're going to do the deal, right? Nope. Jack, what is it? The other actors will we'll change him out. I'm not doing it. Jack, what is it? We'll get more cash for the deal. Jack, we're going to do it, right? I'm not doing it. But Jack, why not? Why not? It's the part. The part you have me playing. He's a down and out, a, a luckless idiot. Jack, that's just the part. Of play. We're going to do it, Jack, right? I can't stand the whole world seeing me <clears throat> as a down and out. He hangs up the phone. Now that conversation never happened. Because any actor, as well as anyone going to the theater, understands that the actor has a role to play. There's a script, carefully written. And the actor is judged on one criteria. How well did you play your part? If his part to play is an idiot savant, and he plays it well, he'll win accolades, he'll win awards. If his part to play is the most successful person in the world, but he plays his part poorly, the critics will rip him to shreds. The actor has a role to play, and he's judged on that criteria. How well did you play your part? 
And I believe that that's an apt parable for life. Each of us were given a different life setting, different talents, different abilities, different positions in life. And when we've done our job here, there's only one question they ask us. Not how wealthy we were, not how clever we were, not how handsome or pretty. The only question they ask is, these were your talents, these were your abilities, this is what you could have been, how much of you did you become? The Vilna Gon explains to us that the most painful moment in a person's life is not that fatal car crash, not when I hear the crashing glass, the metal twisted, not even when they pull that sheet over my head, and not even when I separate from my body. It's when I stand in front of the heavenly tribunal and they hold up a picture, a picture of a great man, a man who changed himself and changed the very generation in which he lived, and they say to me, why didn't you become that? Me, little me, you want me to be that great man, that sage, that saint? What do you want from me? Says Neville Nagone, the most painful words a human being will ever hear are the words, that is you. That is you had you used your strengths. That is you had you used your talents. That is you had you become what you were destined to be. But you see, the picture they hold up is a picture of me. I'm not compared to you. You're not compared to someone else. None of us are compared to great people living long ago. Each of us were given different strengths, different talents, put into a particular generation and told, become the great human being you could be. Ford those streams, climb those mountains, and at the end of your days, you'll be measured by the most demanding, exacting standard, the standard of you. How much of you did you become? 80%, 60%, 40%, but the scale of measure is me, my strengths, my talents, my abilities, how much of me did I actualize? I'm not compared to you, you're not compared to him or her, Each of us are measured against the most demanding standard, the standard of me. And if you think about this parable, that we are but actors on the stage of life, we're given a different role to play, we're given props, we're given stage settings, and the only question they ask when we've done our job is, how well did you play your role? You begin to understand life. And if you don't understand life from that perspective, there's very little in life that does make sense. You see, there's not a human being that I know that was born and was asked the question, tell me, how tall do you want to be? Me? I'll be six foot two. No, make me four foot uh, ten. Make me big and strong. No, make me weak and puny. God, give me 180 IQ, please. No, make it a uh, 80 IQ. It's better for me to be daft and kind of slow. You see, we don't get to choose our physical setting. And as we don't get to choose our physical setting, and we don't get to choose our intelligence, much of our personality as well, we don't get to choose. Daniel Goleman, in his book, Emotional Intelligence, writes that they now have studies that will tell you the personality of the child. At 22 months of age, they can tell whether the child is extroverted or introverted, timid or bold, because much of the nature of the child is hardwired at birth into the baby. Now, you can go with your talents further or not as far. You can expand on them. But at the end of the day, each of us were given different strengths, different abilities. If I decide that I want to be a middle linebacker, guess what? I'm not six foot three. 
I don't weigh 350 pounds, and that is not something that I will become. And if I decide I need to be much more than I am, I could take my talents, I could take my abilities, I could take them as far as I can, but at the end of the day, each of us were given different strengths, different talents, different abilities. And it's not just what you'll assume as the givens. I'll give you another example of what I mean. I know two brothers. Each of these brothers live very, very different lives. One of them, everything he touches turns to gold. Financially, very, very successful. A beautiful marriage. His children, each one more unique and special than the other. And he has a brother. The other brother, everything he touches turns to mud. Can't earn a living. His marriage is kind of on the rocks. His kids, excuse my expression, one's a bigger misery than the other. But here's the point. Two brothers born to the same parents, brought up in the same home, went to the same schools, living vastly different lives. And don't tell me one's trying and the other one isn't. They have different skill sets, different abilities, and their life settings are remarkably different. You ever notice some people have a very easy time about this thing called life? Some people are socially gifted. They know what to say to whom and to how, and some people aren't. And you can learn and you could expand, but at the end of the day, you were given a certain talent set, certain abilities, and at the end of your days, they'll ask you one question. These were your strengths. These were your abilities. How far did you go with it? How much of you did you become? But there's no objective standard. There's no standard that says everyone should be here, you should be here. The standard is the standard of I, my life setting, my generation, where I was put. And as I don't get to choose my temperament, my intelligence, or my physical body, I don't get to choose the generation into which I was born. If I were put into this world 500 years earlier, I do believe my life would be vastly different. If I were born into a different family, I would also have a different upbringing and my life would be different. But hand chosen for each individual is an exact life setting. Hand tailored, custom made to fit you, to allow you to become the great individual you can become. And the only question they ask is, how much did you actualize? How much of you did you become? And I have a parable that I would like to share with you that sort of encapsulates this sort of idea. <clears throat> excuse me, there was a book written a number of years ago. The story was, <clears throat> excuse me, of a professional football player. He was a quarterback, <clears throat> and he was getting in shape for the Super Bowl Sunday, which was three weeks forward. In any case, <clears throat> he's riding his bike along a country road to get into shape for the big game. And <clears throat> at the end of the country road, there's a long winding tunnel. Well, as the story goes, the angel of death who's on the job that day is new at the job. The angel of death sees the football player going this way into the tunnel, sees a car coming the other way. The angel of death says, why wait for the blood, the mess, the actual crash? So instead of waiting for the car to hit the bike, the angel of death takes the football player out of his body, brings him up to heaven. They bury the football player, and everything is fine and well, except for one little problem. Any normal person would have crashed, would have died, and deserves to be up in heaven. But this man was an athlete with keen instincts. 
Had he been allowed to go the last instance, he wouldn't have hit the car. He would have veered off. He would have been alive. He should be alive. The problem is his body is buried. There's a whole tumult up in heaven. What do we do now? <clears throat> and they decide to do the only thing they can do. They find another body, another person whose time, in fact, is up. And they put this football player back into the body of that other person. The cute part of the story is that the football player opens his eyes and sees himself <clears throat> in this palatial manner, and realizes that he is this rich tycoon. He then feels the flab on his body, realizes he only has three weeks to the uh, Super Bowl Sunday. So the cute part of the story is that he has the butlers and the maids on the front lawn running football drills as he tries to get his arm in shape for the big game. But there's a punchline. I'd like to share with you one critical observation. That exact experience occurred to you and I. You see, I am the occupant of this body. I'm the guy who tells my arms and legs to move. Well, before I was in this body, I was under God's throne of glory, and God said, this is the generation into which you shall be born, into this birth order, in this particular family. These are your talents, these are your abilities, these are the stage settings of your life. Here is your role to play. Go out and do it. And when you're done your job, you will be judged by one criteria, how well you played your part. And when you understand this parable, when you understand this perspective, life fundamentally makes sense. And if you don't understand this, then very little under the sun makes sense. If you look about the world we live in, you'll see tremendous inequalities. Some people are gifted and some people aren't. Some people are born with a silver spoon in their mouth and some people quite the opposite. And if we understand that God is kindly loving and giving, how do we understand why he would give such inequitable lots to different people? But once you understand that all of it is irrelevant, you understand these are all but roles in the play. These are just <clears throat> parts that we act out. You quickly realize that it doesn't matter. I'm not measured by how much money I have. I'm not measured by any of my exteriors. I'm measured by one single criteria. <clears throat> these were my strengths. These were my talents. How much of me did I become? And when you understand that, you understand that all of the trappings that we place so much focus on, so much emphasis on, really are irrelevant. And when you understand this, I believe you also understand the answer to this section of the Talmud. You see, great wealth is a life test. When you wake up in the morning and you say to yourself, I could buy and sell the city. That is a major life test. I don't need anyone. I'm independent I don't need my wife, I don't need my kids, I don't need God. I can buy and sell the world. And that is a major life test. Do you become inflated, do you become conceited, or do you recognize But you are but a flesh and blood mortal, and you use your gifts for what they were given to you for, to accomplish, to do for others, to change the world you live in. And as great wealth is a life test, so too is poverty. When you don't know how you're going to pay your mortgage, 
and the creditors are calling and calling, and the word foreclosure keeps coming up, and you barely scrape together enough money to pay that month's mortgage payment. And that night, you're driving, and you hit a parked car. You look left, you look right, no one's there. Do you leave your phone number there, or do you not? That is a major life test. As great wealth is a life test, so too is poverty, and I believe that's exactly what God was saying to Rebeloza Barpadas. It's not by accident that you were born into this generation. It's not by accident that you were put into this body. And it's not by accident that you're suffering poverty, disease, and illness. This is the ideal state setting, the perfect outer trappings that will allow you to become the great individual that you'll be. Do you want me to put you into a different life, one that might include wealth, one that might include comforts? Maybe I can and maybe I can't, says God. Why? Because this one has been carefully crafted, perfectly created for you, because it allows you to become the great person that you could be, but perfectly challenged, not too easy and not too hard. As my face is different than your face, my personality is different than your personality. And God created for each of us the ideal, perfect laboratory setting to allow us to be challenged, but allowed us to succeed. The perfect balance. For me, different than for you, because I am different than you are, but each of us were given hand-tailored, custom-made life settings to allow us to become the great human beings we can be. And I believe that's exactly what God was saying by Rebeleza, to Rebeleza It's not by accident. It's not because I ran out of cash in your generation. It's because this is exactly what you need. It'll challenge you, but will allow you to flourish. And when you understand this perspective, life itself fundamentally makes sense. And if you don't understand this, very little under the sun makes sense. And astonishingly, there are many great thinkers, many wise men who miss this point fundamentally. Let me give you an example. Alan Dershowitz, in his book, The Vanishing American Jew, writes the following. He was teaching a course in Harvard Law. He's a Harvard Law professor. And he was teaching a course in studying the big issues of life, thinking about thinking, dealing with all of the major life issues. At a certain point in the course, he decided that they were going to rate the world's religions. They were going to see what religion has done for mankind. So they did a survey that took all the world's religions, Judaism, Buddhism, Catholicism, laid them out, and they gave them rankings, whether they contributed to mankind's betterment, to world peace, helped man, didn't help, and they gave each one a ranking. Alan Dershowitz describes that at a certain point during the course, a student raises his hand and says, Professor, religion is a way of studying God, a way of relating to God. If we're rating the world's religions, shouldn't we rate God? He thought about it and he said, you're right. So as a class project, they set out to rate God. How did God do at this thing called creation? Does God get an A, a B, a C? How did God do? Okay. Now, before I spoil the fun and let you know God's grading, let me give you some background. From Alan Dershowitz's perspective, when you look out at the world, it's sort of a, a mixed bag. There's a lot of good. There's love. There's friendship. There's <clears throat> harmony and peace. 
On the other hand, <clears throat> there are some rough spots. There are poverty, there's disease, there's divorce, there are orphans, there are widows. So there's sort of a balance. And um, on balance, God rates a B minus. Not an A, certainly not an A plus, not an F, kind of in the middle. God did okay at creating this world, and God rates a B minus. Okay. Now let's imagine for a minute that I had the opportunity to rate our learned professor. I would give him a grade. I would give him a grade for his study over there. It wouldn't be an A. It wouldn't be a B. It wouldn't even be a C. It would be a D for dumb. And I'll explain to you why. Imagine I would pick up a pen. I had to hold this pen. I would say to you as follows. You see this? This is a lousy toothpick. No, really. I mean, come on. Whoever made this toothpick did a lousy job. First of all, this thing over here that holds in your shirt pocket, who needs that? Worse than that, the clicker, who needs that thing? But far worse than anything. And when I put it way back into my molars, I get this blue inky thing all over my, my mouth. I mean, whoever designed this toothpick did a lousy job. Now, that would be an example of fallacious thinking. Because before you rate the manufacturer, you have to know what they intended that object to do. As a toothpick, it might be lousy. As a writing implement, it might be well manufactured. Before you rate BIC, you had better know what they intended that object to do. And I claim the same when it comes to God. Before you have the audacity to rate the creator of the heavens and the earth, you had better have a clear fundamental understanding as to why God created the world why God created mankind, and why God put you on the planet. And if you don't have an answer to that question, you're going to come up with some pretty silly ideas and some pretty silly theories. And I'd like to share with you a parable. A parable that answers probably the biggest question in life. Why did God create us? What is life about? So here's the parable. Imagine that you're invited to a health club. It's a very exclusive health club. You've never been there before, but you know the basic layout. On the left side is the spa. The spa has a sauna, the steam room, the massage table, everything you need to just kind of relax and chill. On the right side is the gym. The gym has all the equipment you need to work out, the Nautilus, the free weights, everything you need to get in shape. Well, you decide it's been a very stressful week. And as you walk into the health club, you say to yourself, I'm heading right to the spa. But by mistake, instead of turning left, you turn right, and you find yourself in this room. Oh, my goodness. What's all this equipment? All these red-faced people grunting, sweating. Whoever designed this spa did a terrible job. The Mesilla Shisharim, the past of the just, one of the greatest works on Jewish thought in the past 500 years, explains that as a parable to creation. You see, when God created the world, God created two worlds. There's this world and the world to come, each with its plan, each with its purpose. This world is the gym. We were put into this world to be challenged to grow, to change the essence of me. When I'm done my job here, my body is put into the ground, I separate, and for eternity, I go into the spa and I enjoy what I accomplished. But two worlds, each with its plan, each with its purpose. This world is the gym. You'll be challenged in life. You'll have many demanding situations. And the only question is, did you overcome? Did you get larger? Did you shrivel up? Did you shrink? This is the gym. When you're done your work here, 
You go to the world to come where you enjoy your work. And when you understand life from this vantage point, fundamentally life makes sense. And if you don't understand life from this vantage point, then very little under the sun does make sense at all. I'll share with you some interesting thoughts. Have you ever had a headache? How about a migraine? You ever have a migraine? You ever see someone who can't concentrate because they're in such pain? Or how about arthritis? Ever have arthritis pain? I walked a man up three steps on Yom Kippur. And I believe he suffered more pain in those three steps than I suffered my entire year. Here's the question. If God is merciful, kindly, and loving, why create a pain delivery system? Why make pain? What benefit does man have from it? And don't tell me, well, it teaches man to avoid things. You see, avoidance pain is vastly different than that. You see, when you're about to step on the nail and you suddenly don't, when that nail is just going through your skin, that pain is processed in the spine. You see, the cellular pathway takes that message up to the spine, quickly sends a message back to jump off. Because if the nervous system had to take that all the way up to the brain, by that time the nail would go through your foot. Avoidance pain is processed in the thaw, in the spine because it has to be instant. But the type of debilitating pain that won't let you get out of bed in the morning, whether it's arthritis, whether it's a pancreas that won't allow you any rest, whether it's a stomachache or a flu, that type of pain is processed in the brain and it serves no benefit to man. No one is bigger, stronger, wiser because of it. And the question is, if God is kindly, if God is loving, why create pain? And if you don't hear this question, I'll ask you another one. In the human being, there is a stupefying immune system. An immune system that's so complex, <clears throat> so vast, and so integrated that <clears throat> mankind has been studying it for now hundreds of years and barely begins to scratch the surface of it. A fantastically effective way of destroying disease and protecting man, but yet with obvious gaping holes in it, almost seemingly planned. And more than that, specific diseases that enter just those holes. Here's the question. If God is wise enough to create the immune system in man, why leave the gaping holes? If God is wise enough to create such a perfect world, why create disease? Why is there suffering? Why is there pain? Why is there so much misfortune? If God is loving, if God is kindly, why did he create the world in the way that he created it? God is quite capable, and God could have created a man in a way that he would not suffer, he would not fatigue, he would not have pain, would not have travails, and would not have the tragedies that he goes through in life. And a deep fundamental question that a thinking human being must ask himself is, if God is kindly, loving, and giving, why did he create man in the way that he created man, so vulnerable, <clears throat> so weak, so dependent on others? And when you understand life from a deep fundamental perspective, you understand instantly the answer to that question. You see, <clears throat> if life ended in the grave, there would be no answer to that question. When Elsie the cow dies, it's over, blackness, and it's done. 
And if you and I, if when we hit that grave, it was nothing more, then the question that I'm asking you has no answer. Because a loving, kindly God wouldn't create man with this amount of pain, suffering, as man has been created. But once you understand that life has a vastly different purpose, this world is the gym. We're here for a purpose, to grow, to accomplish, but it's not the reason for creation. It's but a part of the peace. When my body's put in the ground, I separate and I continue forever. When you understand life from the gym and the spa perspective, then life itself makes sense. There will be many situations that you will encounter in life that will serve you no good, but they will challenge you. They will demand from you. Do you transform yourself? Do you rise above or do you shrivel up? But there's no sitting on the sidelines. And so many situations in life have been hand-tailored to challenge you. To me, they might not have been a challenge. To someone else, they might not have been. But perfectly designed to challenge you to rise above and to become the great individual you can become or the opposite. But the choice is yours. And when you understand that many, many life situations don't benefit you in the here and now, but they benefit you as an opportunity to grow, to accomplish, to become the great individual you were destined to be, then you understand life fundamentally, and then you realize that God does not rate a B-. God rates an A+. You see, if you believe that life ends in the grave, if you believe I'm put in the box and it's toast and it's done, then God wouldn't rate a B-. God would rate an F for doing a terrible job, for creating so many different things in mankind's life that make it difficult, from earning a living to relationships to suffering to pain to disease. So many things were clearly created that benefit man not at all in his current situation. But once you understand that there's a much broader perspective of life, once you understand that this world has a purpose, You may not know the exact answer to every situation, but the perspective allows you to understand that every situation that you go through in life is a challenge that allows you to transform yourself, that allows you to change the essence of you. Your biceps don't get bigger. Your thighs don't get more muscular, but the essence of you changes. You become more patient, more giving, more dedicated. You become a greater individual. And when you understand that, You understand life, and you understand why God put us here, and you understand the wisdom of our Creator in creating man as He did. I was a high school teacher for many years. I taught in a yeshiva, boys' yeshiva. The young men that I would deal with all came from religious homes, very fine fellows, and they were typically academically solid, And I also found that there was much about life that they didn't understand. And my job as a Rebbe, as a rabbi, mentor, teacher, was obviously to teach them how to study Talmud, to approach the text. But I felt a responsibility on a much bigger level. And that was to teach these young men about life. And every year, I would begin the course curriculum with a question that I would ask these fellows. And I did it in all seriousness. I would gather them in the room and I would say, gentlemen, I want you to answer this question. Why don't you guys sin? Why don't you sin? But I don't mean little stuff. I mean really big deal, evil things, rape, pillage, murder. Why aren't you out there doing every imaginable 
<clears throat> devious thing you've ever heard of. Well, typically the fellows say, well, Rabbi, <clears throat> God will be angry with me. I don't want God to be angry with me. At which point I would say to the fellows, listen to me carefully. Throughout the millennia, many, many wicked people have flourished. Don't you worry about God. Oh, that's true now. <clears throat> but <clears throat> when I die, my neshama, my soul is going to burn. I don't want my neshama to burn. At which point I would look at these young men and say, aha, I get it. There are many things you're going to do, many things you're not going to do, all for the sake of your neshama, for your soul. You listen to me. You take care of you. You do exactly what you want. Why should you work hard, hold yourself back, do things you don't want to do, all for the sake of your, your neshama, your soul? You take care of you and let your neshama burn. Now, I would always say this standing at the front door. No one was allowed to leave until I gave the answer. I didn't want to hear 20 years later, a guy becomes a serial killer, you know, Rabbi Schaefer said. So I would make sure they stayed for the answer. <clears throat> but what is the answer to this question? So Rabbi Yisrael Salanta, one of the great Musar teachers, tells us that we make a fundamental mistake about death. People get this sort of <clears throat> black, sort of, I don't know, death, uh, like, uh, I guess at rest, right? You go to the cemetery, rest in peace, He's at rest. Harvey was a good man. He's in his final resting place. Most people, when they think about death, think about it as going to sleep. Explains Rabbi Salanta, actually, that's not correct at all. If you'd like to understand death, it's really quite simple. Imagine I walk into the room, I take off my coat, and I am in the room. That is death. This part, the arms, the leg, this is the body, this is the coat, the coat's put in the ground, but I, the guy inside, walk out. The body's put in the ground, and I emerge. But it's I, not my alter ego, not my distant cousin, me, the one who thinks, the one who feels, the one who remembers. But that's not the way most people think about death. <clears throat> most people think about death as in going to sleep, as in blackness, as in I won't be there. The exact opposite of the reality. You see, when you go to sleep, you're not there. Right? Imagine you break your arm. Throbbing pain. You take Tylenol, doesn't help. Tylenol, Percocet, <clears throat> nothing else. Finally, 3 a.m., you fall asleep. Oh, it doesn't bother you because I'm not there. Well, if death was like going to sleep, then the question that I asked those fellows has a lot of legitimacy. Why should you work hard now so that your neshama, your soul, your distant cousin, alter ego, some splinted down version of you should have a good time there? You take care of you. Explains the Rizal Salanta, that's the most fundamental mistake you'll ever make in your life. Because you are the neshama, you are the soul. My body is the housing, like an astronaut who wears a suit. I'm the guy inside, I'm not the body. And when you understand that, you understand that death is not like going to sleep, quite the opposite. An acute, brilliant awakening. <clears throat> Suddenly I'm not so sluggish, I'm not held back. But it's the same I who thinks, the same I who remembers. But you see, it's very difficult. And we get very caught up into the body. And trying to distinguish I from the body isn't so simple. For instance, let's say you were to punch me. Ow, why'd you punch me? Now, a more accurate understanding there is, <clears throat> I am tied to this body right now. You punch the arm of the body which I occupy, and therefore I experience the pain, but it's I here, watch. Imagine it's a Sunday morning, and you open the newspaper, and you say, oh my goodness, six numbers. Oh, the lotto. I, I, 
a hundred million dollars. Wow! I, I just won a hundred million. Stop. What just happened? <clears throat> what just happened was I experienced tremendous joy, happiness. But let's focus. Did my arm feel it? Did my leg feel it? Did my chest feel it? I felt it. I'm the one inside, and I'm the one who tells the arms and legs to move. Do you ever say a line that by the time the line came out of your mouth, you wanted to find a hole in the ground to crawl into? Searing pain of embarrassment. I am an extraordinary pain of embarrassment. But again, it's not my forehead that feels it. It's not my chest, not my leg. I, the one inside, I, the one who remembers, when my body's put in the ground, I separate, and forever I am what I made myself into. And while these concepts may be on some level intuitive, they're very different from the way that we normally think. And so I want to give you a little example to help bring this a little bit closer, to help identify the I as opposed to confusing ourselves with the body. So imagine the following. Imagine you're in a car and your sister is driving. And your sister is a very polite uh, young woman, but uh, she's not the best driver in the world, but a very polite person that she is. Well, anyway, as uh, she's driving on the highway, you do notice that the uh, speed limit says uh, 65 and the speedometer on the car is on 85. You don't want to say anything, but and you know your sister's not the best driver in the world, but, you know, okay, kind of hang on there, whatever. When... You're driving along when all of a sudden she gets a text. Naturally, she's very polite. So naturally, she texts back. And she gets another text. And she texts back and back and forth. And you're getting nervous and nervous. But you don't say anything. And back and forth and back and forth. Suddenly, crash. You're out cold. You wake up three days later in a hospital. You open your eyes and you look up. And on top of you is a doctor looking down and says, Sorry to be the one to tell you this, but you'll never move another muscle in your body again. And you feel your arms, and they don't move. And you feel your head, and it doesn't move off the pillow. Nor your legs, nor your chest. Help! I'm stuck! And you realize that you're locked into your body. And imagine it's you. And it's imagine that it's the hospital bed, and you're locked into your body, and your friends come to visit and your friends say those things that they say when they don't know what to say. Oh, you look terrible. Thanks a lot. My battery's going to be sticking out. You got to know how look. So here's the question. You, in that state, in that hospital bed, are you alive? Most people would agree. You think. You remember. You want to scream at your friend for saying those things. So most people would agree that you're alive. But if you're not quite sure, I'll share with you an interesting thought. The editor of Elle magazine in France was in just such a car crash. And he woke up in the hospital in locked-in syndrome in that state. And he later wrote a book called The Diving Bell and the Butterfly that describes what it was like for him in that state. He describes the nurses. Some were so kind and so sweet. Some were <clears throat> when he called Attila the Hun. He describes his emotions, his feelings, seeing his children come to visit. Now, interestingly, that man could move one muscle. He could blink his left eye. A speech pathologist devised a method for him to communicate. 
She wrote the alphabet on a card. She'd move her hand down the card. When she got to a letter that he wanted a signal, he would blink his eye, and then she would write it down. That man in the hospital, the weeks and months that he was in that state, was he alive or not? So again, if you're not quite sure, let's just focus on one fact. That book that he wrote that became a national bestseller in France, later translated into English, later made into a movie, was written by that man in that state. You see, in the mornings, he would compose the sentences and the paragraphs in his mind. In the afternoon, his secretary would sit at the foot of his bed, taking dictation, letter by painstaking letter, because he died in that state. And if you read that book and you read about the man's feelings and emotions, you see a man vibrantly alive while his body is effectively dead. And that's a parable, an example to help us understand one of the key fundamental ideas of life. I am not my body. I'm housed in my body, temporarily occupying my body for a while here. And most people, when they think about this long and hard, they get that sort of aha moment. Ah, Rabbi, I got it. I'm not my arms, not my legs, not my chest. I get it. I'm the brain. Ah. Nope. Sorry. I don't know if you've ever been to an autopsy, but when they bury the body, they bury the brain as well. You see, the brain is an organ that I think through. I, the one who feels, I, the one who remembers, am temporarily have to think through this clunky, concrete thing called the brain that has limitations and that has very real restrictions. But I'm the one who feels, I'm the one who sees life through the perspective of this body. But when the body's put in the ground, I separate and forever I will be what I made myself into. And for thousands of years, these concepts were very elusive. To identify I outside the body, to identify I outside the brain was something that was very, very difficult to understand. But in our modern days, I believe it's easy and almost obvious. I'll share with you why. In 1979, Raymond Moody wrote a book called Life After Life. Raymond Moody was a physician, and this book described something that he encountered, and he coined a new phrase. The phrase that he coined was near-death experience. The book is a chronicle of a few hundred patients who had died. On the operating table, they were clinically dead, no heart rate, often time no no EEG. They were clinically dead, but if they were revived within four minutes or so, often time when they came back, they had vivid recall of what was going on when they were dead. And all of the stories had an eerie commonality. The patient describes kind of popping out of his body, hovering from above, hearing conversations, and then when he's resuscitated, repeating verbatim conversations that he could not possibly have heard because he was out cold, unconscious on the table, patient after patient, story after story. In any case, in 79, Raymond Moody published that book. And it caused quite a stir in the scientific community because it didn't make sense. The patient's dead. He's dead. What do you mean he saw, he remembers? It can't be. But the problem was he was a physician. And since that time, thousands upon thousands of cases have been reported, collaborated, and proven. It's become 
an accepted fact in medical science. We don't understand what it means. <clears throat> we can't understand it. But something, somehow, the person lives on after he's dead. Okay. Now, interestingly, <clears throat> there was an article in Lancet magazine not that long ago. Lancet magazine is a prestigious British medical journal. And the focus of the article was to do a survey of the various studies of near-death experiences. Again, there have been thousands of reported cases, and they were looking for various pieces to put the whole picture together. Now, I'm not going to bore you with the details of the story, but I'll share with you one anecdote from that story, and you could look up the article in Lancet magazine. The story is as follows. A 36-year-old woman suffered an aneurysm. Aneurysm means bleeding in the brain. Typically, the medical procedure calls for the surgeon to open the scalp, find the bleeding area, cauterize it, sear the tissue, um, and then close it back up, send it back home healthy and well. The problem was that in this woman's case, the bleeding was so deep in her brain that if the surgeon went in to stop the bleeding, he would cause so much residual bleeding that effectively she would bleed to death the surgeon said to her, Madam, I'm sorry to be one to tell you this, but there's nothing that I could do for you. In any case, there was another physician in that hospital who, when hearing about the case, pulled her into his office and sat her down and said, Madam, I want to explain something to you. What the surgeon said to you was absolutely correct. According to proven medical science, there's nothing that we can do for you. However, I've been working on a theory I believe there is a way that we might be able to save your life. It's a bit experimental. Basically, if we put you under anesthetic, draw the blood out from your brain, if the surgeon goes in quickly and does the operation, there'll be no residual bleeding because there's no blood in your brain. In theory, if he acts quickly enough and I could put the blood back into you before your organs suffer too much damage, in theory, we could save your life. She researched it further. She discussed it with other medical opinions. She discussed it with her clergy. There was no other alternative, so she agreed to undergo the procedure. But here was a problem. There could be no bleeding whatsoever. So the article describes that they put her under anesthetic, put tape over her eyes, special probes in her ears, put her body into a bath of ice. They got her core temperature as low as they could and still be able to resuscitate it later. At that point, they drew the blood out of her head. The surgeon opened the skull, went in, found the bleeding area, cauterized it, closed it back up. They took a body out of a bath of ice, put the blood back in, and amazingly, she survived. A few hours later, when she's beginning to come out from under the anesthesia, the surgeon goes in to visit her, and she's already kind of sensible, and she starts laughing. And she says, Doctor... (laughs) I must share with you, when I was in in the operation, I had the strangest hallucination. I hallucinated that I popped out of my body. (laughs) I popped out of my body, and I was watching you from the the ceiling while you operated. And and this is the strangest part. You you took an electric toothbrush. (laughs) You took an electric toothbrush, and and you tried to put it into a a thigh in my leg, but it wouldn't go in. So you turned to the nurse next to you, and you said, "It, it doesn't fit. She said, try again. So you tried a second time, and it, you said, it doesn't fit. She said, try a third time. You try a third time, and it fit. <laughs> doctor, isn't that funny? The doctor didn't laugh, and the doctor turned white. Because the doctor had read enough about near-death experiences that he recognized the signs. And more than that, the doctor remembered that conversation. You see, part of the procedure required him taking a 
a surgical instrument that from a distance could look like an electric toothbrush. He needed to insert it into a vein in her thigh, but the vein was occluded. He couldn't get it in. He turned to the surgical nurse next to him and he said, it won't fit. She said, try again. He tried a second time. He said, it doesn't fit. The nurse said, try a third time. He tried again and the third time it fit. But that conversation between nurse and doctor was held while the woman's body was in a bath of ice, blue in the face. You could have screamed at her. You could have yelled at her. She wasn't present. Yet she heard, remembered, and vividly recalled. And when you read hundreds and thousands of such cases, you begin to come to that critical understanding. I am not the body. I am the occupant of the body. I'm the one inside, and I'm the one who has feelings and senses. I'm the one who tells my arms and legs what to do. But when my body is put in the ground, when I'm done my job, the body is buried and I separate. But I, with all my feelings, I, with all my remembrances, I, the same I who am occupying my body right now. And when you understand that, you come to the most critical understanding of life. Sometimes people say, I'm not sure if I believe in a soul. I'm not sure this whole idea of spirituality, I don't know if I buy it. Well, I want to share with you maybe the most critical concept you'll hear in your existence. You are the soul. You are spiritual. Your body is physical. Your body is material. Your body has an end to it. But you're not the body. You're not the arm. You're not the chest. If heaven forfend you lost your arms or your legs, you'd still be you. You're the one inside. You're the one who thinks. You are not physical. You are utterly, completely spiritual. And as a matter of fact, one of the most intuitive, obvious concepts is that death doesn't stop life. You ever notice that modern medicine has such difficulty defining death? How do you define death? Stopping of the heart rate, when the brain wave stops. How do you, what's so difficult? I'll give you a very simple definition. When I leave the body, I'm dead. When I'm in the body, I'm alive. When I leave the body, I'm dead. What's so difficult? Would you like to know what's so difficult about defining death? You see, I am utterly, completely spiritual. Physical science is very well equipped to measure physical properties. How long, how tall, how dense. And physical science can measure anything in the physical world. But once you get this concept, you quickly realize the dilemma of life. I am not physical. And from a physical perspective, I don't exist. You can't put me into a beaker, add blue dye, and measure me. You can't weigh me. You can't take a ruler, calibrate my length. I am very much alive. I've been alive every day of my life. I feel and I think I remember. But I am utterly, completely spiritual, temporarily occupying this body, and temporarily occupying this thing called life. And once you understand this, you understand the question that I asked those guys. Why do you care what you do? Because it's you forever. Who you will be for eternity is based on one single thing, what you shape yourself into. If you're kindly and giving, you make yourself into a kindly giving person. If you're selfish and bratty, that's the essence of you. Life is one constant experience of shaping, molding, forming the essence of you. 
Your body is only reasonably malleable. You, the essence, the neshama, the soul, are completely plastic. You can shape yourself, mold yourself into a beautiful, giving, kindly person or into a selfish, self-centered, conceited egomaniac. But it's within your capacity and every situation in life will challenge you to be other-centered or selfish, giving or self-centered. And when you understand that, you understand that every situation in life has a dual purpose. I can help another human being that helps them, and at the same time it benefits me because God put me into the planet to grow, to accomplish, and every situation in life is a challenge to allow me to become that which I was destined to be. And you understand the answer to why life is relevant. And you understand why many life situations sometimes are difficult. I think this statement of the Talmud that we began with is a perspective on life that's essential. You see, Rabbi Lozer Barpadas was a great tzaddik, a pious, holy man. But he did not enjoy a beautiful, comfortable life. Why? Did God run out of money? Is God mean? Is God vicious? No, quite the opposite. And what God said to Rabbi Lozer Barpadas, do you want me to find you a different life? Do you want me to put you back into a different body, sort of like the football player? will put you into the body of the rich, rich tycoon, says God to Barbados, don't you understand? This life has been handcrafted, has been shaped, molded for you. It allows you to reach your potential. It challenges you, but still allows you to reach your greatness. To put you into another life, I don't know, says God, if I could find the ideal setting, because this one has been handcrafted for you. And like actors on a stage were given a role to play. If my part in the play is to be an idiot savant, but I play it well, I'll win accolades, I'll win awards. If my part to play is the most successful human being, but I'm a selfish, self-centered brat, well, guess what? When I leave this earth, I will not be awarded human being of the year award. Quite the opposite. But you see, the only question they ask me is how much of me did I become? They hold up that picture of that great human being. That accomplished person who changed himself and changed the very generation they, he lived in. And they asked me that question, why aren't you that me, little me? I don't mean to be that great person, but that person is me. Had I used my strengths, my talents, had I actualized my potential, that's what I could have been. But I'm not compared to you, and you're not compared to anyone else. What God was saying to Rabbi Das is, this is the perfect life setting for you. I gave you the talents, the abilities. I put you into this generation because this is what you need to shape you. The trappings of life are not relevant. And I want to end with one last thought. You see, when all the notables of the generation came to visit Rabbi Lozabar Padas in that state, they noticed three things. He was unconscious, but first he began crying, then he began laughing, then a beam of light came out of his head. The laughing, I understand. <clears throat> when God said to him, your reward in the world to come is in a state that's so wide and so vast that the 13 rivers running through it, I would also find that entertaining. The beam of light, I also understand. When Rebbe Badas said to God, that's all, just 13 rivers and no more, he exhibited something remarkable. Drive aspiration. You see, God did not create a single human being for mediocrity. God did not take us from under his throne of glory, put us into this world for whatever, you know. 
You're married, have a kid or two, make some money, spend the money, then you die, whatever. You'll come up and we'll talk about it then. God did not create a single human being for whatever. God put us each into the planet with tremendous potential, tremendous missions each. And each of us were given the ability to become the great human beings that we were destined to be. Greed is selfish. When I want to take from you, when I want to take something I'm not entitled to, that's a negative character trait. Ambition is beautiful. What Rebbe Lozabar was saying to God was, that's great, 13 rivers, but there's more that I can do. There's more fuel in my tank. I can accomplish more. And God was entertained by that. Touched him on the forehead. The beam of light came out touche, as if to say, yes, my son, you got it right. Because God created the human being for greatness, to aspire for greatness. And God was entertained by that back and forth. So I understand the laughing. I understand the beam of light. But why did he cry? Why did he cry? So Rashi, one of the commentaries on that statement of Talmud, explains to us why he cried. Says Rashi, remember the first part of the conversation? God said, do you want me to put you into another body? And he said, I'm not sure. Did I live half of my life or not? At that point, God said, yes, you already lived half of your life. Says Rashi, at that moment, Rabbi Lezabar Padas began crying. Oy vey, half of my life gone. And he began crying. And if you think about that comment, you should wonder, what does that mean? This man is suffering poverty, disease, pain. And he's living a life of job. It's horrible. He should be overjoyed. Thank God, half of my life is gone. That's great. Why is he crying? Imagine a man who's running a marathon. And at mile 20, the judges say to him, you're setting a world record, just keep it. I've made 20 miles gone. <laughs> he wouldn't cry, he'd dance a jig. Why is Rabbi Lazar sad that half of his life is gone? And the answer to this question is fundamental. Would you like to know why Rabbi Lazar cried? Because when he opened his eyes in the morning, it was with an understanding of life. He understood why God put him in this world. He understood the purpose of creation. And when he opened his eyes, he said to himself, 24 hours to change myself, change the very world I live in, let's go. He loved life. He had a lust for life. Why? Because he understood it. And if you would like to see an illustration of a great man, this is it. Rabbi Lozabar Padas suffered more than you and I and probably more than anyone we know. But he had such a love of life that when God said to him, half of your life is gone, he said, Oi! Because the most precious commodity he was ever given, the opportunity called living, was half gone, and he began crying. And I believe this perspective is essential, is vital for our days. In a time of freedom and opportunity, a time when we've never had it better, so many people are down and depressed, and you wonder why? The answer is because they don't understand life. But when you understand life from a Torah perspective, when you read the guidelines, when you understand the formula for growth, you open your eyes with drive, with energy, let's go. You love life because you understand it, and life itself is beautiful. You understand your mission, you understand your plan, you understand what you're here to do, you understand the answer to morality and ethical questions, and you live a beautiful, successful life. May God grant us the wisdom and serenity to begin putting this into practice.
just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.